Well, it's Monday, May 3rd, which is two days after the day that thousands of families have made one of the most momentous estimations of the value of a thing as they will in their lives and thrown down a non-refundable tuition deposit at a college to which they've been admitted. It also marks the better part of about a year since I released an episode of this show, and uh, what a year, huh? I needed a break and then a nudge back into this space, and I didn't expect it to come in the form of a mention in a New York Times bestseller by my guest today, here to talk about the notion of value when it comes to a college education, personal finance columnist for the New York Times and author of the new book, The Price You Pay for College, Ron Lieber. Welcome back to The Crush. Hi, everyone. <laughs> What's new? How have things been? Uh, anything to report? Uh, sorry, it's taken me so long to do this, but uh, as the pandemic hit, a lot changed in my own life. Namely, my job changed, and now I work as a counselor at an independent school here in New York City, which has been wonderful, but what a year to start a new job in a new place, and especially given that that place is a school that's trying to figure out how to give kids an education in a pandemic. I'm extremely hopeful that next year looks wildly different for all school children. Uh, between my own child, those I work with, those that my friends work with, well, there are definitely some students that this is good for. The truth is that it's incredibly difficult for most of them to say nothing of teachers and administrators who are trying to make this happen. It's just been bananas. Um, I clearly have no poetry to impart here. It just, it just completely sucks. And we are, everybody's done. Everybody is super done with this. Anyways, uh, I can't say as if I felt like I've had tons of extra time over these months. And this podcast does require that I have more than some, uh, but try as I might to slink away I felt compelled to wander back into the fray here, thanks to Ron Lieber, who mentioned this show in his new book, uh, the entire title of which is The Price You Pay for College, an entirely new roadmap for the biggest financial decision your family will ever make. I really honestly like this book, and you should read it. Uh, I interviewed Ron kind of a while ago, as you'll perhaps be able to discern. I felt kind of rusty at it. I've been nervous about trying to do this again after such a hiatus and to feel like I, quote, got it right or something with a big time guest like this. And of course, with the pandemic, the takes on college and college admission have been coming hot and they've been fast and furious and heavy and multidirectional and constant. And personally, for me in a room where a lot of people are all talking. I tend to just kind of want to be quiet and let them talk, you know. But then you talk to a New York Times bestselling author who says something like this. And well, dang, man. You know, in terms of like the podcast that I learned stuff from, um, you know, there isn't a close second to what I got from listening to yours. So maybe I should keep this thing going. I was contacted by Ron in the late stages of his book writing journey, and we spoke for a little while at lunch at Rockefeller Center. He laid out all these index cards that represented the structure of the book and, and said, what am I missing? Uh, I don't know that he was missing anything or that I could figure it out. I was just kind of blown away that this guy took the time to talk to me about it. 
and then to stay in touch, which we did. Uh, he continued to send me little notes of encouragement about this podcast here and there after that lunch. And he's one of not many people to do that who aren't my parents. So that felt good. Thanks, Ron. And so I'm back here in this space and there are more episodes coming after this one. Uh, I promise. I swear I have three more interviews to edit and release. So, so stay tuned. Uh, I'm extremely grateful to Ron for taking the time to chat with me just five days after a major life event for him that you'll hear about right at the start of our talk, which we had during a snowy Sunday in February. Yeah, how you doing? Uh, did I tell you what happened this week? I don't think so. No, that, so the honest truth of how I'm doing is that I was on a podcast at noon on Wednesday um, with Bruce Tolgan, uh, somebody I've known not since um, I was an undergrad at Amherst, but um, but he and I he and I met not long after because we were both you know hustling books at a young age, mm -hmm. and um, you know got to be pals. And uh, he is a um, he does a ton of you know mostly below radar corporate work, um, training companies to do better at. Um, like managing and bringing young people along. Yeah. And um, so he's written a bunch of, you know, kind of B2B books and he's got a podcast. And so he and I were, you know, it was a pretty real conversation because, um, you know, I've known him for a long time and he asked me some, you know, some some super good personal questions. Cool. And so the door, um, so I'm in my, you know, little garret in Greenwood Heights um, where I keep my work life. And, um and the door opens and it, I'm like completely freaked out because sometimes I forget that my wife has the key. We put up um, extra. So we put a Peloton in here uh, in the middle of the pandemic. So she came in. I thought I thought she was um, I thought she was uh, just coming into exercise and hadn't warned me. And she's like standing there and she's standing there and I'm facing the window and Bruce and I are, you know, chit chatting uh, once he stops pushing the button and I turn around and I can tell she's really upset. Um, mm. and my, and my dad had died. Oh man. Um, so he's been, he's been fighting ALS for five and a half years. Oh my gosh. Um, and, uh, and so, but he was not near death. Um, and we were sort of dreading the, like, I don't know how much you know about ALS, but like the death is it's just really ugly. I mean, good. you just, you just essentially get smothered to death, you know, by your own inability to function. Yeah. And, um, and he wasn't there yet. Um, mm. you know, was his his progression was super slow and we thought you know we thought he we i mean we had no idea how much longer he was going to last but his heart had just stopped right so um and in my like you know my worst most cynical moments i had um uh you know all throughout this very long process of putting the book together which really started before he was diagnosed because it's like eight years since i had the idea mm -hmm. uh, i thought um, oh, I, I know how this is going to go. He's going to die right during the book launch. Um, mm. It's like exactly how this is going to go. Mm. Uh, and so I was not surprised. Uh, but, you know, everything stopped, obviously. Um, and, you know, I, and I had to figure out we had to figure out what to do. Uh, and then four hours later, I debuted at number four on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow, <laughs> so that was that was my Wednesday. <laughs> And Thursday, I got back on the horse because like, what the fuck else was I going to do? Oh you know, I mean, I would hate myself, you know, if I you don't get a second chance to launch a book. 
Um, you don't get to debut n- at number four on the New York Times bestseller list. Very, very few people do. And uh, <laughs> and um, and not only would he have been really angry, but he he would be like, you know, hmm. it would basically have like, like kill him for a second time if he knew that like he had slowed me or this down. What, what was his name? So Fred Lieber. What's Fred's story? Uh, so Fred was a um, Fred was a musician first and foremost. Um, he was a, you know, he was a, uh, like a, you know, kind of natural prodigy or, or maybe just like super confident, um, trumpet player. And Hmm. he was in like, you know, polka bands in Michigan city, Indiana as a high school kid. And, um, he and he and Arnie and the soul brothers had a, uh, um, uh, they, their single, uh, which was called The Prune, which you can find on, on YouTube, was the number two uh, uh, single on the, on the Indianapolis pop charts at one point. He had his own group, the Freddie Lee Orchestra, uh, for a while uh, at Indiana University, um, where he got his uh, his business degree and his his undergrad degree and his MBA. Um, uh, you know, and then then he gave it up to become a you know a hat wearing Arthur Anderson accountant, um, <laughs> and spent years you know doing that and uh, um, running a few private companies, and then he reinvented himself as a. Uh, expert witness doing um, business valuations when assets were in dispute. And that's what he did the last 10 or 15 years of his career. Uh, And then he retired and, uh, you know, turned up lame essentially. And we couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. And because, um, uh, because the, you know, medical care in South Florida is so abysmal and crooked, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a year later, we, we sort of parachuted in, flew him out of there um, and took him to see some real doctors. And that's when we realized what had happened. Oh, um, yeah. So that was, so that's how I am. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this horse here is not on any kind of a timeline. So are you, you cool? You want to, you, you want to, yeah. Keep, okay. All right. Yeah. Look, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I like pulled the plug on Wednesday and, you know, didn't, didn't do my talk Wednesday night, but um, you know, just got up and started doing again Thursday morning and, you know, did it all again. What day is today? Sunday. Did yeah. it all again. Did it all again Friday, too. And, you know, doing anything else would feel like a violation, frankly. Yeah. Um, so, you yeah. know, it's probably not it's probably not the, the healthiest um, way to approach the grieving process. But, you know, we had been grieving for him in some ways for a while. Sure. So, um so it is what it is. I don't know that anybody gets a chance to really design their grieving process ahead of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, and even the extent to which you feel like you can, it never goes that way. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. hmm. Well, um, cheers to Fred. Thank um, you. He <laughs> uh, sounds like a fantastic human and had a bunch of great kids. At least. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, we um, we did pretty well by him these last five years. Uh, we brought a lot of music and fun his way and uh, we left it all on the table. So, yeah, that's great. I'm mm-hmm. glad to hear it. Um, no regrets. Yeah. 
Thanks for sharing that, Ron. And I'm, 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 I'm sorry to hear it, but, um, I imagine that, you know, as I contemplate, you know, the fact that all of our parents get older, um, and that it's a strange, I mean, I've, I feel like it's been maybe happening to me for a period of about a decade where I've, uh, periodically had these sort of jolting awake moments of like, oh my God, I'm a grown up. And I, I mean, that there's things like that that continue to emerge. And, and one of them is realizing that, that, that there, you know, it is very gradual, right? There's, there isn't a point at which you're, you realize I don't, you know, your parents are aging and you're gonna have to help them with that. Um, maybe there is, I don't know. We'll get there. And it's probably different for everybody, but, yeah. um, but you've been, I mean, your, your approach to, uh, to pushing this book out has been like, you, you, you have to have been forced into some, some pretty creative, uh, ways to do what you've been doing. I mean, everything gets moved online and you can still reach audiences and talk to people online, but what you've been like delivering meals to people's homes or what, <laughs> what, what is this? It's true. Um, so, I mean, what to say about that? Um, look, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, acts of outsize. Uh, I, I'm a big believer in outsize acts. I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in feasts and stunts. And um, and extra large gestures, yeah. Uh, and you know, loud words when they need to be loud, and soft words when they need to be soft, but 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 strong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, all things in moderation, including moderation. Um, Oscar Wilde, <laughs> yeah. Is that is, did did he say that? It was yeah. I think so. Uh, I'll probably be wrong, but it, I think that was him. Um, and uh, and like you know, um, a lot of books come out each year, and uh, I have no shame about playing um, the carnival barker, the circus clown, the dancing bear, uh, you know, whatever it takes, right? Um, you know, I, I worked really hard uh, on the reporting. I believe in the ideas. Uh, I want people to pay attention. And um, if you don't make a case for yourself, nobody else is going to. What's been your favorite of so far? Like, I mean, you've, you, I heard you twice in a row on David Brancaccio's little morning report. Yeah, that's pretty so, sweet. So like I'm sitting so, there in the morning getting my stuff together and my daughter's in there and it, run Lieber. Okay. And I turn to my daughter. And I said, hey, I know that guy. And she's like, OK, <laughs> she's eight. She's a good. She'll be eight in, in, in April. So she she will have she, she will have been alive for as long as you've been working on this book. But what, what's been your favorite um, experience so far pushing this out? Well, you know, a lot of it has been me sitting in this chair, you know, pushing the buttons, pushing buttons and and um, and talking to people on screens and and calling out Room Raider. <laughs> Ron's got a sign behind him that says Room Raider is classist. And it is. It's a, I love it. 
I have not yet had the guts to display that on an actual television show. <laughs> but n- now that my dad is dead and I really do not have two fucks and, and left to give. No, and, you're, um, and you've got only three ahead of you on the New York Times bestseller list, right? It's, Zero it's fucks of, and not yeah. much competition. Go for yeah. it, man. Um, it's tempting. It's tempting. Okay. Um, but yeah, what have you, what's been uh, good? So, uh, look, I, um, I, 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 uh, I, I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass here. Um, the things that are most meaningful to me are, you know, when I have an opportunity to have um, conversations with people whose, you know, work or contribution um, was itself meaningful to my work. And so um, the... Uh, the amount that I learned on the pain for one, uh, pain for college 101 Facebook page, which is like, um, you know, a bunch of parents all teaching each other, yeah. uh, you know, how financial aid and merit aid works, but a lot of other things too. Um, you know, the opportunity to speak for that group uh, w- was one that I, I, I really cherished and, and valued. And, you know, in terms of like the podcast that I learned stuff from, um, you know, there isn't a close second to what I got from listening to yours. Holy cow. So, so, uh, you know, this is a this is a highlight for me. You know, nobody gets a book party right now. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I like I, I I don't deserve or get to whine about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm 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 being published by a major publisher. My book made the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, you know, I, I don't even get a small violin, but. Um, you know, I didn't want to like hang out with a bunch of friends on Zoom, you know, with them raising glasses or whatever. And so I, I decided I was just going to bring the party to the people. Um, <laughs> and if there like weren't going to be any real book signings and if there weren't going to be any real book parties, I just make my own. And so I got it in my head that I would, um, you know, anybody who ordered the book ahead of time um, and, and signed up for, you know, the uh, the opening night um, event uh, that was done through my local synagogue in Brooklyn and through our community bookstore, which happens to be called Community Bookstore. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody who did that and lived within three miles, which people de- defined liberally, it turns out, um, anybody who lived within three miles, uh, I would come and bring them their book myself. Um, up to up to 50 books and we ended up with like you know 44 orders um, oh, and I also agreed to throw in uh, a snack um, so there's a, a, a local food store here called R&D Foods and uh, Sarah Dima and Eileen Rose and the proprietors uh, we go back uh, you know decades now because uh, Eileen and Sarah used to work at City Bakery which is a, a legendary now defunct um uh, I don't even know how to describe it in words in the Flatiron District. There was so much that was great and special about it. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, it was a it was a cafe, but it was more than a cafe. Mm-hmm. And it was a bakery, but it was more than a bakery. And my wife and I had our pregame dinner there the night before our wedding. And they had made, you know, a number of incredible things. But there's one uh, kind of off menu item that they don't make anymore at their new shop um, that they had made the night before our wedding. And so I got them to whip up a batch of their special um, edamame hummus. And I delivered edamame hummus and rice crackers and signed books for anybody who ordered ahead of time. Oh, and, you know, do, you know, went out with this hand-drawn map um, and my ninth grader in the front seat. And for five and a half hours, 
years. We went from, you know, Bed-Stuy to the Northeast to, you know, downtown Brooklyn to the West, you know, swung down through Cobble Hill, mm-hmm. Park Slope, <clears throat> Windsor Terrace, Prospect Lefferts, uh, you know, then down to Ditmas, and then we, and then we, and then it was eleven o'clock, and we ran out of time. <laughs> and uh, and my sister in law picked up the Bay Ridge Run the next day, um, so we managed to get like thirty nine of them done or something. Oh, that's cute. It was a whole, it was a whole bunch of people I'd never met before, yeah. and um, and then it was a whole bunch of people I've known for decades, and that was my party. What a cool way to do it. Um, that's really that's that's awesome. It's been fun to kind of watch on Twitter as you go from from spot to spot too. Um, well, I want to. I, I have nine zillion questions. What, what's your time like? I'm good. Um, what you know, whatever you need. I mean, you've you you we've already established like that. You've got to be there for kickoff at the Super Bowl because it's Super Bowl Sunday today, and you're just a gigantic like you've been waiting all year for this, right? what time does the game start (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i have no idea who cares what is what what matters um the only thing that matters is that tom brady doesn't win (laughs) that's i hear here uh i think uh overwhelming i mean the popular vote on that is uh is overwhelming I could spend easily an hour on one of these chapters, even the shortest one. For me, it covers, you know, and I, as I as I said to you, I think every admissions counselor should read it, and I specifically think that every new admissions counselor should read it, um, because uh, this is one of the things that you know may contribute to some of the anxiety that parents feel if they don't know it already, and that is that a big chunk of what's going on in admissions offices is going on at the hands of like 20 somethings, (laughs) you know, that like haven't had another job before. Like they were tour guides and they said, I love this. How do I get to keep doing this? And they go, well, come join the admissions team. And they go, sweet professional tour guide. Right. And so they've, they're, there is more Kool-Aid than blood in their veins. Right. And so all of these questions that you're encouraging them you're encouraging families to ask, which, by the way, one of the immediate things that came to my mind at the end of each chapter when you're like, here's all these questions you should ask was like, annoying. That would be so <laughs> annoying. That would be like if the we've all had that parent, that parent. OK, it's not like that parent in every session. It's like that maybe that season that comes with these questions. You know what I mean? And you're like, get them out of here. Right. Wait, but did you feel that way because um, you don't want to actually have to answer the hard questions, or because you think the questions are inappropriate? Oh, they're not. They're not inappropriate. Uh, Some of sometimes there are, but still. But I think that all these questions that you encourage families to ask, and is, and the, I think that the reason that the new admissions counselors should read it is like that they should prepare themselves for to be able to answer these because that's another big part of why it's annoying because I didn't know the answers to these. Then you have to say, you know what? Let me get back to you. And then you actually have to do it, you know, or not. In which case, as you point over and over again, should be a signal, right? Like if they don't. Um, but I think that it's it's so like, you know, as you know, I worked in this function as scholarship coordinator, right? And 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 it took me. I don't know what it was about my brain. It takes some time for things to sink in. It took me a long time to realize what an endowed scholarship was. Just what is it? How does it work? Like, what's the point of it? 
how do I tell a family what it is when they go, oh, this is cool, right? Like, what's this? The I think that the fact that you went to college at a place and now work in the admissions office feels like qualification enough to do the, to do the work for most brand new admissions counselors. Then they read your book and they go, oh, shit, <laughs> I really need to I need to learn a lot more stuff about a lot more stuff. Right. Uh huh. So what do you hope that the people in college admissions get out of this? Um, here's what I hope they get out of it. I, I hope they get ready. I hope they get ready because I'm trying to raise an army. And, um, you know, I don't mean to be oppositional about this, but if it's going to cost above $300,000 at the rack rate or above a hundred grand for the flagship state university, we are owed O E O W E D. We are owed a lot more and a lot better information about what is actually happening to people at these schools and afterwards. And we shouldn't even have to ask. I mean, it should be on offer. Um, it should be easily accessible and, um, you know, thrust in the faces of the people who are interested. And if it isn't, they should be ready to answer these questions. I don't think that anything that I'm asking of these institutions is unreasonable. And so uh, I'm trying to um, encourage people, uh, readers, um, you know, to be uh, more educated if they are shoppers and to feel more entitled uh, in this process. I would venture to guess that you've you've accessed pretty much every data set that you can that's out there to access when it comes to, I mean, with the exception of like some, you know, academic research and stuff. But generally speaking, you know, the, the stuff that's on offer for families to access and you've kind of gone through everything. No, I mean, as much no. as you possibly could, which is this, I mean, which is which. No. So you're saying no. And you've got a whole book that is like you spent, you know, better part of a decade nope. trying to find those things and go yeah. through it. And you still haven't gotten through it. Um, there is something that I still intend to access uh, that is not immediately and readily publicly available um, that I have plans to pry loose from a triple digit number of institutions. Is this legal? It, will this be, will you obtain it legally? I will obtain it legally. <laughs> uh, the schools will not like it. Um, there will be fights and I will win, um, but it's going to take a little while. So well, stay tuned. Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's a hell. Okay. I mean, that's it. That's all we get. That's all you get. Okay. All right. I bet you could guess. I bet you could guess. I I bet you've, I bet you've seen this thing. Maybe you didn't. Maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't a tool that was used uh, at Rochester or at SC, but, um, but maybe. Yeah. uh, There's a good, there's a chance, but I'm going to, you know, I don't want to steal that thunder from you. Ron, you know, so I I want to, and also I need the follow up to this to be to be meaningful too when we come back around after you do that. Um, but which is the one of all the data sets that you went through that that defines objective quality? Oh, I, I don't know if I have a good answer for that one, but <laughs> I mean I can tell you what what I think is most useful. Um, you know, and and this gives away a lot about you know, what I do for a living at the New York Times, you know, as, as my day job and, and, you know, what the market 
is like for uh, hardcover nonfiction books. Um, you know, books are not a mass market. The New York Times is aiming at a little bit more of a mass market. Um, but, you know, the paid subscribers at the New York Times and the people who buy hardcover nonfiction are generally pretty affluent, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, let's call it, you know, somewhere between the 2% and the and the 10%. And there's there's a fair amount of the 1%, you know, that, that's kind of interested in my my messaging around value and and shopping in a more informed manner. So what are those people interested in? Well, you know, we take it on the chin a lot at the times for writing too much about the Ivy League and, you know, assorted other similar schools. Yes. And I think some of that's fair. And some of it um, reflects a lack of understanding or appreciation for the fact that we have customers that we have to satisfy. So for more on this, I recommend listening to the episode I did with Ben Castleman, who uh, <laughs> right. is, is now at the New York Times and wasn't. And before that, he was with um, 538. 538. He wrote an article called Shut Up About Harvard, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, which was the the, the the reason for me to want to reach out to him. And he, he spoke. It was It's one of my favorites. So if you want to listen, there's a good one. I highly recommend that episode. Um, <laughs> Uh, and now, of course, Ben is, you know, uh, thankfully not having to cover higher education. All that. No, often. I was able uh, to really <laughs> catapult him into his next thing. <laughs> right. So, um, so here's the thing, right? It is true that you know much less than one percent of the population uh, goes to Harvard or thinks about it, but the percentage of the New York Times subscribing population that went to Harvard wishes they had gotten into Harvard, would like to at least think that their kid or grandkid is qualified for Harvard, mm -hmm. or is just curious from an extremely voyeuristic perspective about Harvard, mm -hmm. is way, way more than 1%. Mm -hmm. It's more like 10 or 15 or 35 or what 52%, whatever mm -hmm. it is, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's way more than it is um, around, uh, than it is about probably any other school. Uh, I am a service journalist. I do journalism that is useful. Um, and if 22% of the readers, you know, went to Harvard or want to get their kids to Harvard or curious about what their kids would have to do to go to Harvard, uh, you know, I'm here to serve, right? Um, but that's a, that's something of an aside. You know, it's just a long way of saying that um, I do work in service and in, in many ways to the upper middle class. And, I, you know, I make no apologies for that. That's that's how I'm, I make my living. I also do a lot of work that, you know, uh, has impact on on people with much less income. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of up and down the social class. You uh, sound a lot like the independent educational consultant that says, I also do pro bono. Yeah. And I. Um, uh, so, so the, so the question that, that, that's a fair point to make. And the question I would ask of those independent educate, independent consultants is, you know, how much of your time do you spend serving each, um, you know, sort of category of customer. And I sleep very well at night, um, knowing, uh, what a high percentage of my time I spend, uh, on stuff that makes a difference for people with lower income. So I'm, I'm good with that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also know where my bread is buttered. Right. Yeah. And so this is a very long way of saying that the common data set, um, was most useful in my reporting. Right. And of course, anybody who's ever looked at it knows that it's got, you know, 
hundreds of pieces of common data on it, right? So which data, which, which data were most useful? Well, line H2A, that's what was most useful. What you is really H2A? know that? That's a, you really know that? Yeah. H2A. You wait, you don't know what H2A is off the top of your head? No, I just wanted to goad you into, of course <laughs> I know. Of course I know. And I have no idea. What is it? H2A is um, in so many words, and there's a lot of really garbled words there at H2A describing it so that no parent would ever really know what they've stumbled into. But what H2A, not that any parents stumble into the common data set anyway, unless someone tells them to go look look at it, who, who knows a lot about the system. But what H2A is, is the percentage of people who have no demonstrated need, who still get a discount anyhow, even though they're rich. Mm -hmm. And my readers in the two to 10%, most of them don't have anything close to $100,000, let alone $300,000 saved for college. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are might be competing in the realm of schools that do not offer merit aid, but mostly they are looking at least some merit aid schools. And they're pretty ambitious. So chances are they're in that category of school of like, you know, slot 50 to slot 150 on the list of, you know, most selective institutions in America. Mm -hmm. And in that group of schools, that's where some or maybe a lot of people are getting merit aid, but not everybody. Right. So if I am an affluent family, but not so affluent that I can go running around writing $75,000 checks, that's my sweet spot because mm -hmm. I may have the ability to pay or borrow, you know, up to $75,000, but I'm not sure I have the willingness to yet. Right. And so I want to know what sort of discount is that school giving to affluent people like me, um, even though they're not advertising it and are unwilling to be transparent about what they're doing on the front end, on the admissions office page or in the net price calculator, because then they would be embarrassed about the fact that they're in that position. Hello, Connecticut College. Hello, Oberlin. Um, neither school is willing to speak to me. Um, oh. uh, they're, they're embarrassed about their market position. Uh, they don't want to have a conversation about it. They don't want to be transparent about it. It's not baked into the net price calculator, but um, it is right there. Uh, in the common data set. And so that is the most useful piece of information. So I was asking God, that was that was a long answer. I'm no, sorry. it's okay. That's, <laughs> yeah. Thank, well, thank you for apologizing. I've been sitting here yeah. furious at, at every word you've been saying that, yeah. but the, I mean, and I, I asked the question sort of obviously stupidly snidely realizing there that probably that there is no measure of objective quality. Right. And that this is the, and that this is the, the thing that I'm constantly trying to get at with this show and then with just in, in my, in my life and in my vocation, trying to understand this notion of quality and, you know, and it's sort of where I started with Bill DeRidgewitz, somebody that you talked about in here. It's like, what's the point, you know, what's worth, what's worth, what's worth it. What's worth paying for. Right. What would you say, you know, to families who, when they say, or they feel so maybe they haven't interrogated the idea much, but they feel like they've got a pretty good idea of what a, good colleges and what a not good college is. How would you encourage them? I mean, and the whole, I mean, and this is kind of impossible because the whole book is like various ways to interrogate that idea. But in the time we have, and in the answer that you would give to that question, like how would you encourage them to, to learn more about what makes a place good? 
Uh, I love that you use the word interrogate because before you can even figure out what makes a place good and before you should even try, you need to engage in more than one form of self-interrogation. And you describe these families coming to you thinking that they had done the work and that your job was to sort of complicate that notion by making them realize that they almost certainly hadn't. Right. So I am right there with you. Um, so, you know, it starts with like the two most cosmic questions of human existence that you can apply to like almost any decision that you need to make as a human being or as you know somebody in the workplace. Right. Which is what is the definition of success? And how much is enough? How much so, success you know, is enough? Yeah. Right. So it starts there, right? And um, and you can't lie. Like, you can't lie to yourself. So what are the things that you might lie to yourself about? Well, you know, the, 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 the three leading emotions of, you know, college and college decision-making and college money are fear, guilt and snobbery i love right it. yeah you know fear of falling down the social class ladder of your kid falling down the social class ladder uh um you know if if you make the wrong choice and, and they end up on a you know the wrong trajectory in the wrong place guilt that you haven't earned enough that you haven't saved enough that you are unable or unwilling to spend or borrow enough that you didn't move to the suburbs when you had the chance that, that you didn't is. that you that you didn't stay in the city and and pony up for a fancy private school in Chelsea. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, what are you talking uh, about? Um, uh, so, um, uh, you know, guilt that you can't do what your parents did. Mm -hmm. um, guilt that your parents did nothing and you're not doing everything because that's what you promised that you would do for your own kid when your parents were unable or unwilling to do it for you. And then all of the snobbery and elitism about, you know, what our neighbors have done, what our friends have done, what we did that our kid might not be capable of. And we want the gold star to prove that, you know, they equaled or exceeded what, what we were able to accomplish or the school that we were able to get into. Um, the concern about other people's snobbery, right? Because there is a market out there in the world for 22 year olds that our 17 year olds will be subject to in a very short number of years. And we may, you know, be concerned about somebody else's snobbery or elitism. Um, you know, if you, if you, uh, you know, if you've got a kid on your hands who, who wants to be an investment banker and, and find their way into the analyst program at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, if they go to, the University of Alabama, even with all of that merit money that's being thrown around with that school trying to buy out-of-state students, you are not going to get hired at Goldman Sachs because they're a bunch of snobs. And so, right, um, you've got, uh, at least not for the analyst program, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, uh, so, you know, you've got some thinking to do about other people's snobbery too, right? So you've got you've to get real um, with your emotions, and if you are able to do that, and it's a big if, because not everybody's capable of, of you know, that level of emotional intelligence and uh, emotional reckoning, then you've got to define for yourself what college actually is, mm -hmm. right? And there are no right answers to this question, but it, it was clear to me at the beginning of my reporting process that 
people didn't even really know what college was for. Right. They had these sort of like vague ideas, but they but again, they had not gone through the sort of self interrogation that was necessary before the interrogation of the institution. So not only is there no real objective measure of quality, but there isn't even an objective definition of 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 what a higher education is or even is supposed to be. Well, you know, it does three things broadly and it can do all of them incredibly well and it can do all of them incredibly well uh, at once and it can be. It can be worth not just three hundred thousand dollars, but you know, three million dollars, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, depending, mm-hmm. right? But you know, I so I just kept asking people, like, what are you doing, right? Like, what what was this? What why why are you buying this, right? What do you what are you trying to get out of this thing? Um, and I kept hearing the same three things: um, people want their kids to get an education, all right. So what what does that mean exactly? you know, at its at its like highest, you know, order at the, the, you know, sort of classic, you know, Oxbridge, you know, British or, you know, classical Greek level. It, the idea is that you get your brain disassembled by expert practitioners and then it's reassembled into a bigger, brawnier, better version of what came before it. Right. So yeah, mind like grown, that. mind blown. Mm-hmm education number two is kinship it is finding your people it is the friends who will pick you up and haul you through life Mm -hmm. who will lift you up on a chair and dance with you over their heads while doing the hora at your (laughs) wedding they will be your pallbearers at your funeral they will invest in your startup they will you know, help you get a job when you're out on the street. Um, And then it's, and then it's not just your contemporaries, right? It's, it's your mentors. It is the grownups who will take you by the scruff of your neck Mm -hmm. and drag you into whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing next. Even if you can't see it for yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So college is for kinship and then college is for credentials. And there's two ways to think about that. Right. If you are a low income student, if you're a first generation student, uh, if you're a student, um, you know, who's coming from a very different background than the one that the college can provide, um, maybe the credential for you is about taking a couple, you know, leaps up the social class ladder into a more stable uh, economic life for yourself, whether it's at the middle class or above, right? So maybe maybe your deal is, I want a stable life that's as recession proof as possible. And so I'm going to be a nurse. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be an accountant. I am going to be a teacher. Teachers usually don't get fired, right? Um, you're aiming to, you know, you're aiming to establish yourself in that way with, with more stability, maybe than what your family had before, or, um, you're more like me. I mean, I, I didn't see myself this way at the time. Uh, you know, I, I came from kind of a mixed bag of privilege. I went to, you know, an elite um, K to 12 private school, Francis Parker in Chicago, but my family went off the rails financially midway through and I ended up on scholarship and kind of, we had to kind of beg and and plead and, and maneuver our way through various financial aid systems um, to, to, to make it all work. And um, even at Francis Parker, I, you know, I did not have a lot of exposure to people who had reached kind of the, you know, the highest levels of, of, of book publishing and, um, and journalism. There were one or two people who were like that, but, um, 
the the stars from Francis Parker in that era actually ended up um, in Hollywood. Strangely enough, there's just a mm-hmm. ton of producers and directors and actors running around from my era, and that that was not my gig. Um, and so when I went to Amherst, I didn't know it at the time. Um, but what ended up happening was that. When I graduated, I was hired by somebody starting a journalism startup who had went to Amherst and had only posted the job at Amherst and two other places. Then when I got my ticket you know, to New York City and went to work in the Time and Life building, I was edited by somebody who went to Amherst and was hired by a snob who was impressed that I went to Amherst. Right. And then when I moved from Fortune to Fast Company, I was hired by someone who went to Amherst and edited by someone who went to Amherst. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and so... Mm-hmm. Did Amherst have something to do with it? I think so. Strong chance. Right? I think it did. And so, you know, for some people, the credential is about the possibility of doors being open to you that you never could have imagined, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, my dad went to Indiana. My mom went to Wisconsin. You know, they were they were retail Jews, they were grocery store Jews, right? They, they were not they were not, you know, journalism at the highest level Jews. How did you find Amherst? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I had what I thought was a pretty thoughtful decision-making process in my head. Uh, it's fun to revisit it, these. Yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot of it did not turn out to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I had a plan, right? My mm-hmm. plan was this, um, I was going to spend the rest of my life in Chicago. Whoops. Um, never went back. Um, and so I knew that it would be healthy for me, uh, to get away from there. And to get away from living in a city, because I knew I was going to spend the rest of my life in a city. I got that part right. Yeah. And so I should go someplace far from a city. And I didn't want to go anyplace big because I really liked small. I liked my Mm. small high school. Mm -hmm. So I looked for the very best small school in the United States of America that was not in a city. And I was pretty sure that was Amherst. And I applied early and that was that. Yeah. You know, it's to I'm I'm fascinated by this idea of snobbery and of course nobody would 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 self define that way necessarily uh they maybe would come up with other artful terms for it um some are clear-eyed about it and george schultz died today you know i'm thinking about trickle down economics in that era uh if there's something that trickles down it's snobbery right and (laughs) and that um it's annoying and it's it's very uh, superficial, right? And and all of these things, but it's not like it doesn't have currency, and it's also not that it's not. You know, you didn't say there are two valid emotions and then one that's invalid, right? And I use this. You know, I like to 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 use you know Maslow's pyramid as like a stand-in for. Like, let's look at it and, and figure out what you really need in a college experience. I think that's fun to talk about. And right in the middle is esteem needs. So snobbery speaks, I think, directly to, to that idea that you got to feel good about this for whatever reason, about this decision. You have to feel good about yourself and you're, you're, you have to feel validated by your community, whatever that is. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Um but not everybody necessarily needs to, f- well, l- yeah, look, you need to feel good about the decision. But the thing, thing that I liked that you said there was, you know, this notion that <clears throat> it doesn't have to be the same way for everybody. Everybody is looking for at least one of these things. And some people are looking for all three of these things. And some people are looking for all three of these things equally. And some people are um, looking at just 
looking at all three things unequally, right? So, you know, you you can conjure up any sort of or sort of student that, that that fits into this framework, right? So there are students who care nothing about the learning, care nothing about the kinship, and care everything about the credential uh, that can vault them um, into uh, a, a sort of um, uh, vocational stratosphere that they could not get themselves into otherwise, and, and their inherited privilege from their parents and, and their connections could not um, help them with either, right? So who would we imagine there? Well, we would imagine a 17-year-old budding entrepreneur who has ace coding skills and incredible business sense. Maybe he's already started one company and sold it and knows that they have what it takes. And all they want is to go to Stanford, not to make any friends, not to learn anything from the undergraduate classes because they don't think they have anything to learn. They just want to be able to walk to Sand Hill Road because they've got this super hot startup idea and they intend not even to graduate from Stanford, just the mere fact of going there will get them entree that they need to those offices on Sand Hill Road and they will drop out with a $10 million Series A by the time they're 19. And you know, that kid from suburban Milwaukee, right, would not have that opportunity as a sophomore at UW-Madison. They would not have that opportunity at Lawrence University. They would not have that opportunity at the University of Chicago. They wouldn't. You could right? be George Schultz's grandson who thought it might be a good idea to get involved in Elizabeth Holmes' little outfit there at oh Stanford. Gosh. And, you know, <laughs> maybe sometimes they don't make great decisions at places like that. Maybe at sometimes at places like that, they, they, they make really terrible felonious decisions. Which is also right. worth kind of weighing into all this. And then we look at the, you know, the fact that there are some of these people like Josh Hawley and others with these absolutely fantastic credentials at these snobby places who've done more damage to society lately than they have good. And that it doesn't matter really where you go so much as it does... Uh, you know, how you interact with the people when you're there, right? And what you learn from the place. What do you, th I mean, what do you think about when you go to a, you know, you go to a school, like, what is it? Because this is, to quote my great friend, Bart Gratian, to quote him, to paraphrase, I don't think I'm going to get it right. These schools are basically like, they're basically like, they're, they're like uh, hospitals that admit healthy patients and then congratulate themselves when they leave the hospital healthy. So what does the place do versus the engagement of the individual with the place. If we continue to roll with the framing around education, kinship, and and credentials, um, you know, it's not a bad framework for thinking about these elite institutions. And, you know, I should just say that the price you pay for college is not about elite institutions. I was most interested you know, to the extent that I went anywhere and, you know, and I went to dozens of places, but obviously there are thousands of colleges. So if the dozens of places I went to had anything in common, they were right in the sort of sweet spot, but really it's a sour spot for the schools where people with the ability to pay are increasingly questioning the willingness to do so. And some people are willing to pay the full price and some people aren't, right? So no one is yet questioning whether 
uh, there's not enough people questioning um, whether they should have the willingness to pay for Carleton College so that Carleton College has to offer merit aid. But boy, did the president of Carleton College have fear in his eyes when I asked him when that was coming. McAllister College, they're already there, right? Mm -hmm. St. Olaf, down, right down the road from Carleton, they've long since been there, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, you think about the, the NESCAC schools, mm -hmm. the athletic conference in the Northeast. Um, I imagine that the lacrosse coach at Colby College is really pissed that the Connecticut College coach is able to throw around $20,000 Meridate coupons right now. Um, that can't be easy to recruit against. They don't call um, them coupons, do they? They don't, but they, <laughs> but, but we should, but yeah. we should. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but that said, right. You asked, you asked the question about, about the Carltons and about the Colby's mm -hmm. and certainly about the Harvard's and the Yale's and the Stanford. So, you know, here's how I see it. I, I, I mean, it's as far as the learning goes, some of these places are terrible places to be an undergraduate trying to learn something. Hmm. Um, these are institutions where uh, many of the most elite professors are brought on with the explicit understanding that they will not have to teach undergraduates. Um, and many of them, you know, brag when they think that nobody is listening, but I listen. Many of them brag when they think that nobody's listening uh, uh, about never having even met a teenager on their campus. Um, this is bad. Um, and, uh, you know, I won't name names, but it's easy enough to figure out who in the Ivy League cares about undergraduates and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage people to ask really tough questions about that if they care at all about the learning that goes on at these institutions so if you want they may not but right. they may not and that's okay with me right right because if you're going to an ivy league school to buy a network and you're an extrovert and if you're going to an ivy league college to buy a credential and you're career-minded you can get three hundred thousand dollars of value out of those places without learning a damn thing it's possible i, I don't i don't think that's how it should be but i'm just trying to you know, get people to be real with themselves about what it is that they're shopping for. And if they don't care about the education, um, all of the Ivy League schools could do wonders for them. You know, the, the we, we, we all have shorthands for, you know, we being people that, that counsel kids that want to look at college, you know, shorthands for, for certain kinds of quality. The, this whole job is about making sense of three or 4,000 times every row in the common data set and, and, and trying to then, you know, put this very special fingerprint of one child onto that and say, yep, that's your match. And um, that's the part that drives parents most insane is how do we go about doing that, that act of reduction. Yeah. And I don't know that you would, find anybody that would necessarily explicitly say I don't want my kid or I don't care about my kid having decent relationship however they define it with faculty members so that that one seems to be you know in terms of 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 you know education and kinship you know very related in in that way and you talk about you know professors take you know having uh, people over for dinner which you know, I could I, it's like I did have dinner at one teacher's house, but I also um, had more teachers who I think would rather do anything else with their time. <laughs> they were at home because they weren't at school. You know what I mean? 
Um, the shorthand we use is, you know, student to faculty ratio or average class size. And you break down a lot about, um, you know, this idea of adjunct faculty and what that means. And, and I think that's really cool. And you should listen to the episode I did with Maria Maisto about that to learn more if you're interested in the, 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 this really the labor economics of adjunct faculty. But what would you have families do to learn more about like, what would be the, what, what are the good questions to ask so that they can understand what the real dynamic is there between student faculty and in terms of the, you know, having a quality relationship? Well, it's definitely not the student faculty ratio because there's all sorts of faculty that don't have to teach at, you know, many of the larger institutions. Uh, you know, I would ask, uh, you know, what percentage of your, your time, uh, especially in the first two years, uh, not, not just classes, but time do you spend in classrooms, um, where there are more than 100 people because, you know, there's going to be less of an opportunity to get to know the professor and for the professor to get to know you. Uh, I, you know, I would I would ask every student you encounter, who's the faculty member who's had the most impact on you? How did they have that impact? Um, who's the faculty member you've spent the most time with one-on-one? -on -one? How, how much time have you spent? All right. And then I'd ask the institution, right? Do you, um, you know, you sort of start here with like a, a, a knowing and maybe somewhat, somewhat obnoxious, um, you know, statement of truth, which is that like, I know you don't know very much about what goes on here, that you haven't really done much self-study um, and you haven't done much, um, you know, polling of recent graduates about uh, about what actually made them happy here and, and what didn't. So let's just go with the Gallup research, which, you know, has shown that the mentorship is is a really big deal among the three or four biggest deals, um, you know, for life satisfaction when people are, are young adults. What exactly do you do to encourage mentorship and what do you do to measure it? And if the answer is, you know, glassy eyes and, and silence and let me get back to you, then something isn't working right. Ron, you, you're giving admissions counselors a lot more work to do here, pal. Okay. And they got, they got a lot of work to do. I don't know if you've heard about these double digit increases in applications that have occurred as a function of them all going test optional. They got a lot of work to do. How, when the hell are they going to find time to do all this research to answer all your questions you're going to make them answer? Um, that is a fair question. Um, and, you know, it is tempting to respond with, you know, particularly at institutions that that can that can command the list price in many instances. Um, you know, the, you have the resources to ask IR to ask institutional research to to. I was about to say generate the data, but the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of the stuff that I'm asking about already exists. It's just not shared. You think so? Right. I mean. I mean, let's be real, right? Um, or if it doesn't exist, it wouldn't be that hard um, to find out. And I and you know, I can hear the IR people groaning, like, <laughs> "Good luck, good luck getting the faculty to, mm -hmm. to cooperate." You know, with the stuff that you're asking about. But I mean, what what else would you you know, acting on behalf of admissions officers everywhere, what else would you have us do? I mean, do you not agree that? Um, that family's approach to this is is too much like a supplicant and too little like um you know an automobile shopper you're you're correct it it is this supplicant uh, uh, relationship and it's so um 
I hope that you get there, you know, and I hope that this encourages people to, to get there. But the, the question that you pose is like, this isn't a car. You can't you can't go kick the tires on it like you can, you know, you can't take it for a test drive the same way you can a, a car because you're going to drive that car. And the next day you're going to get in the car and it's going to drive the way you did before. Whereas when you go to college, like you're going to hope basically you're taking a leap of faith that the experience that you're going to have there over four years is the one you've been sold. And you can go and do an overnight and you can do all that stuff, but you can't take a four year run at it before you go have the real four years. It's a service as opposed to a product, isn't it? Uh, I think that's right um, as far as it goes. But, you know, I, I have a beef with the high school guidance counselors and the independent educational counselors who are all like, really shouldn't start this until junior year because too much pressure and what do you really know anyway? And you want to know what pressure is? Pressure is having to figure out where you're going to go for the next four years on the basis of maybe four hours, right? Because yeah. you have you have so little time, so little money to, you know, to go spend on, on the touring before you go spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for the four years. Mm. You know, you've got so little time that you're making a, a, a four-year decision on the basis of a four-hour visit. That doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. That makes no sense. Sure. All right? So, um, so I want people to get started early, not because kids should feel pressure, but because they should have you know, a, a better sense much earlier of what their parents are able to pay and what they're willing to pay uh, so that they know, you know, what the realistic options are financially. And they should begin to sniff out, you know, but before their second semester of their junior year, huh? Like, how would I feel about a, about a big place? How would I feel uh, about a place that's smaller than my high school? How would I feel about uh, a, met, a a geographic area that's different than my own, whether mm -hmm. it's going from the south to the north or the north to the south or being near an ocean or being in the Midwest or being in a town instead of a city or a city instead of a suburb. Like, how would that actually feel? What's the campus you went to where you were like, oh, my God, this place is I've never seen a place like this. Just from a visual, physical sort of standpoint where you were like kind of blown well, away by it. So when I was uh, when I was when I was out reporting. Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you, um, this was the one school I went to that I'd never heard of before. Uh, but because John McKee is such a great writer, I had to go meet him. College of St. Benedict and St. John's University. That's like a weird name, right? Um, you know, these two schools run together. Not if you're Catholic. We used to well, we used to play we used to play St. Benedict in high school. So that's confusing to me. St. John's, I thought was in New York, but then it's also in Maryland, and then it's also in then it's also in New Mexico. And turns mm -hmm. out now there's another one in Minnesota, except it goes <laughs> with the College of St. Benedict. And I can't remember which town it is, and it's actually two towns because there's two campuses. So I always get it wrong and I pull the book up. Okay. Um so this place is amazing. <laughs> Saint, the so again, the architecture the is incredible. The, okay, so it is called the College of Saint Benedict and Saint John's University, and I'm pretty sure that those two places are two different campuses. And it's in, it's in it's in it's in Minnesota, 90 minutes west of the Twin Cities. They're in two different towns. Okay, what was so cool about it? 
Well, it was a it was a it was a spectacular mix of um, older buildings and this like super awesome um, modernism. Mm-hmm. I I don't know what decade, but it's it wasn't quite brutalist, mm-hmm. um, but you know it was like a lot of concrete and angles and just you know you just stand there and gape. You um, like you you and, got... and also and also. Um, just generally like Minnesota is so underrated. Mm. Um, it's under, it's underrated as a place to live. It's, it's underrated as a bastion of progressive values. And it is definitely underrated as a place to go to college. I just, all I think about is Prince and Jesse Ventura. And pretty much that's all I need to know when it comes to Minnesota. I think you, you got arguably one of the more interesting sort of series of uh, college tours that anybody could get. They spend so much time talking about how differentiatingly different and fantastic they are. Each one, right? If you go to their website, they're the best college on planet earth per se. Are they, or like, what are they, you know, are they also different or the stuff that runs together for you? I wish colleges did a better job of making themselves distinctive and distinguishing themselves uh, you know, in, in in a way that actually involves some, you know, some some actual competitive jousting. The fact of the matter is, is that it can be hard um, to figure it out. And I, you know, I set a goal for myself to try and find a place that that was actually doing something distinctive, so I could just I could just write about that um, as being noteworthy um and so i i didn't know where i was going to find it or if i was going to find it this is your worcester chapter but it became clear during the reporting um that worcester stood apart um and you know this was this was a school i did know um my uh uh one of my high school basketball teammates played for worcester and so that was how i had first heard of it um but i you know i hadn't heard much about it since then and it turns out a couple of things were going on there um they were doing some things that you know practically nobody else was doing and they were two things that just sort of warmed my um annoying reporter's heart um uh you know i just i i i had um i had a sort of a thing about about transparency and about pricing and predictability on the front end and worcester decided a handful of years ago that they were going to make an offer to any student who wanted to take them up about uh, on it. And, and the offer was this, uh, you don't even have to apply. You don't have to fill out our net price calculator. If you're interested in this place, come and talk to us, hand us your transcript and, and your test scores. And, you know, let us know a little bit about your leadership skills and, um, and, uh, and, you know, give us, give us the FAFSA or the EFC or mm-hmm. whatever. And we'll tell you about how much this would cost you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, no monkey business, no waiting for the award letter, no filling out the net price calculator to figure out if this is yet another selective merit aid offering school that does not bake merit aid predictability into the NPC. Um, hello, annoying schools that, you know, don't <laughs> offer that. Um, just come to us and we'll essentially offer you 
a merit aid pre-read concierge service. That's mm. what it felt like Infuriated to me. Infuriated every financial aid director at every peer institution anywhere around the, the earshot of College of Worcester. I am not sorry in the slightest. <laughs> I'm not sorry. Uh, um, and by the time I was done with the reporting, College uh, uh, Whitman uh, out in Washington had matched it. Um, interestingly, when Whitman sent me the press release, <laughs> I had to correct their press release. That was when I knew I'd learned enough to write the book. They sent me this press release saying, like, well, you know, first school in the country to do da 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 da. And I was like, actually, <laughs> actually, let me introduce you <laughs> to, to Scott Friedhoff at the College of Worcester. Um, so that was noteworthy to me. And then the other thing that they had not done on purpose, I mean, they got lucky with this, but, you know, all of this, you know, Gallup research comes floating out of, um, you know, the original work done at Purdue. And it says people are really stoked if they have a mentor and they're super happy if they have had an opportunity to work on a long term project while they're in school. And for decades, you know, Worcester had been doing that very thing with their independent study program, which is, you know, effectively a, a mandatory, uh, mandatory senior thesis. There's a handful of other schools that do that. Uh, you know, Princeton's the most noteworthy. Um, but Worcester had very clearly built the entire um, four years uh, around that academically, built the entire learning or uh, around, you know, that being the kind of pinnacle of your academic experience at Worcester. And not only that, you know, rather than just like do it and not say much about it, um, you know, they throw this giant party at the end of April. There's no, there's no other way to describe it. Um, and, you know, any of you who are academic tourists, um, you know, college counselors are just people who like road trips. You really just you really got to go, um, you know, at the at the end of each April uh, uh, on a Friday, they cancel all the classes and everybody who did uh, an independent study, which is everybody, you know, pretty much everybody presents in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. And it's like Woodstock. <laughs> um, you go from building to building and their scheduled presentations and their poster presentations. And, you know, there's, they, you know, buy out every bakery for 20, 20 miles. There's, you know, all this food mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the parents all show up and they're just like slack jawed that these kids have pulled it off. Alumni come back. And it, it was, it was amazing. I mean, I, I could have done a week of that. It's just, you know, sort of a gog at, at what these 22 year olds had accomplished. And, you know, are, are the are the are the projects as good as the projects at Princeton? Probably not. I don't know. But Princeton doesn't do this. Mm. Princeton doesn't Princeton either doesn't feel like it has to um, or doesn't actually think as much of the students who are doing the work to put them on display in this mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, and Worcester wants to shout it from the rooftops and yeah. and and throw a big party, and so um, that to me, right? They they were literally living the Gallup research. Um, now they hadn't engineered it that way cynically; they just sort of got lucky. But right. but clearly, when they put it together, they knew that there was something something good about this, right? So that wasn't meant to be an endorsement of Worcester per se. Um, there are all sorts of people who 
won't like that school for any number of reasons. Um, but to me, it was an example of, you know, what does it mean to be distinctive and, you know, to pick a couple things that are important and then do them well and and have real clarity around what they are and and what it is that you stand for as an institution. Yeah. And I'd like that because it, it, it it'll make shopping easier. Mm. Like you go to you go to Worcester and like, you know what you're going to pay and you know, um, you know exactly how it is that your kids going to have their mind grown and their mind blown by an actual mentor. Hmm. And if that's important to you, like really important, maybe you go buy that there, you know, if, if you don't mind being in the middle of Ohio, which is not for everybody. Right. Um, so, so what, so if you're not Worcester, right. What, uh, what exactly do you stand for? Right. What, 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 what is it that makes you distinctive? Um, what is, you know, this quote gets attributed to Jerry Garcia, and I've never been actually never actually been able to prove that um, he said it. So I, I don't know where it comes from, but there's this idea out there that like, you know, every band has the music that only that band can make. And if you don't have music that only you can make, then you're probably not destined for greatness or longevity. Now, there's a lot of schools that, you know, have achieved longevity, but I don't know that they've achieved greatness or distinctiveness such, such that, you know, I'm going to spend $600,000 in today's dollars, uh, you know, for my two daughters to go there. I want to return a little bit to something that you were talking about earlier and to ask a question like, when is it, you know, you're talking about uh, students getting you know, introduce that it's, it's best, it's good for them to get introduced to this stuff early, you know, ninth and 10th grade, not pushing it off until 11th grade. And it reminded me to ask you, you know, when is it, when, when is the money stuff a parent issue? And when is it a kid issue when it comes to college? And, and I assume it's, there's such a thing as too late when it comes to that conversation. So when is the right time to have it to begin with? Yeah, I'm in a lot of trouble with um, adolescent psychologist Twitter right now because the excerpt, the adaptation we did from the book in the New York Times um, had the headline, your high school grades are worth $100,000. Time mm. to tell your eighth grader. But did you write that headline, by the way? Do you get to do that? Uh, I do more. I, I do um, sometimes. Um, and this was a headline that I wrote and we we ended up sticking with it. Okay. Um. And, you know, I wanted to get in the face of people who were not telling their kids the truth about how this works. And maybe it was because they didn't know how it works. And part of the reason I wrote The Price You Pay for College was because my inbox had been filling up with increasing numbers of people each spring, essentially crying that they had not known what was going on behind the scenes. Their mm -hmm. high school counselors hadn't even explained merit aid to them. They were shocked when it was offered to them. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know the stuff was negotiable and they got to March or April and they were like, shit, I think we just applied to the wrong schools. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, so, so much, so much goes wrong in this process with people who are, you know, just not asking the right questions or not being emotionally honest with themselves or not being financially honest with themselves. Um, you know, you, you know, you know who loves me? Who? Financial, financial planners. Oh, I was going to say your wife. My wife loves me most of the time. <laughs> um, financial planners love me because I feel like the parent 
or the parents, you and your spouse, if you've got one, your ex, if you've got one of those, unfortunately, you need to get uh, straight in your head and then straight with one another about what it is that you think you're going to be able to pay and what it is that you think you're going to be willing to pay. Because those two things might be different, right? And you and the other parent, if there is another parent on the scene, um, you know, are going to have to work that out, right? Mm -hmm. Go to your kid and say, "Look, this this is this is what we this is what we think we've got cooking, right? Um, because shouldn't they know what is available to them before they start the process of laying down a record as a high school student?" I think they should, right? Not not because it's great, right? Yay, let's have a let's open the books to our 14-year-old. Um no, I don't, I don't think that's great. Um but it's the system that we have and the alternative is not letting them know until they're 16 or 17 after the vicious math of grade point averages has sort of done its work, right? And all of a sudden, you know, the the they can't um earn their way through really good academic performance into a $25,000 a year annual discount um, from, you know, Case or Rochester, or Occidental or Whitman, because uh, because they didn't do the work and, and they didn't mm -hmm. know what it took. So. So, yes. Right. So then they're just then they're going then they're getting a discount farther down the food chain or, you know, they're going to the regional branch, the state university. They're going to community college. No, no great shakes. Right. Um, but options that could have been available to them that might have been better for them are not available for financial reasons because they didn't know how stuff worked. And that was because their parents didn't know or their parents didn't tell them. Um, so uh, I get that um, people feel funny talking about finances with their kids. And I get that the adolescent psychologists are worried about putting ever more pressure on children. But let's also be real. I mean, how many emails? No, Davin, how many tens of thousands, how many hundreds of thousands of emails did you send from the University of Rochester or the University of Southern California to 15 and 16 year olds after they took the PSAT that said something about merit aid? Millions? Fact, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, in fact, my 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 job. They're going to find out about this. Of course. I mean, my, my, my job at Rochester is, in fact, to unravel any kind of guarantee about merit aid, too. Right. Like to say to say that like we had some sort of entitlement awards that we would give students and we we, we rolled that back. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, not to point the finger at, you know, poor 28 year old Davin who, you know, inherited a system oh, was, and, and didn't 24. 24-year-old Davin who inherited a system and did not build it himself, right? But um, but the fact of the matter is, is that people are throwing five-figure coupons into the inboxes and, you know, text message threads, uh, you know, of, of children. Yeah, right. Right? And so they're going to find out about it anyway. And they're probably going to find out about it from the school. So better to give. Don't them, you want to? Don't you want to get in front of that as a parent? Better to give that. Well, yeah, better to give them a sense of context, right? I mean, yeah. I think that for a lot of parents, I would argue that that you know a big part of the fear to return to one of your top three emotions uh, is that man, maybe this is the first time I think for a lot of families that kids maybe recognize their their what their actual like socioeconomic status is. Right. And, yep. that, and that what like the rubber hasn't quite met the road quite as it will with this issue. 
and and that sounds super super scary to me if I'm a parent that is afraid of going there with my kid and doesn't have the tools like do you know what I right. mean I, I know what you mean and and my weakness and my blind spot here and and my you know I, I'm tempted to call it arrogance, but it's really just a blind spot is that what I really wish is that everybody had read my last book, um, which mm. is called The Opposite of Spoil. And it's all about how and when and why to talk to kids about money and what to say when you do. Yeah. And that book stops at 16 because I knew innately back then that there was a, the, you know, that there, there was a college book to be done. I, I hadn't figured out what it was yet, um, but that the college thing looms so large that I, I couldn't really address it in that book. But that one of the biggest reasons to start having money conversations with kids sooner is that you're preparing for what for many families is the biggest financial decision they'll ever make. And that happens with and for their kid is, yeah, when their kid's a teenager, right? So you you got to get them ready, right? If this is the first time, if this is the first time they're realizing what their socioeconomic class is, then you probably haven't been having enough financial conversations with them early on. And that's fine, right? No shame, no blame. But that does not mean that you should put it off until junior year after Davin Sweeney has filled their inbox um, with with $50,000 merit aid offers. They would never, by the way, I mean, I, they would never let me sign it. Okay. I mean, I may have had a, I may have had a hand and I don't know, maybe the draft came across my, it was not, you know, let's be honest. This book was supposed to come out when? Supposed to come out in August of 2020, so, and it was it was essentially wrapped up the second week in March of 2020. Right then, the shit hit the fan, and you yeah. can tell how much you um, had to adjust when you read this book. When you see all of the ways in which you you had to make, uh, and that you did make adjustments based on you know coronavirus realities, and it's 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 really cool. Um, I mean. It's it's not cool. It's it's impressive. It's, it's I'm sorry that the necessity created the opportunity for you to do that. Um, but then um, uh, should we should we forgive these loans? What do you think? Should we do this loan forgiveness? Uh, I would like to question uh, the terminology that you're using because if we talk about it in terms of forgiveness. That makes it sound like somebody did something wrong. Mm-hmm. And if anybody did anything wrong, it's that we as a nation have spent a generation conducting one of the biggest economic experiments of our lifetime using children as guinea pigs. It's page 300. So... <laughs> Look, so it's in the advanced copy, so I don't know if it's still there, but look, there it is. Yeah, yeah. there it is. Thank you for thank you for dog earing. Well, I have to keep up with Marie and all her fucking <laughs> I love her. I love her. I love all the stickies in her book, and I love your dog ears equally, uh, and your underlines. Um okay. well, it's not a so, so is it uh is it so is what it, do you call it if so it's is, not forgiveness? You call it cancellation. So do we cancel them? 
So the New York Times is not big on me making policy pronouncements, although I have a little more license. They don't listen. The New York I don't Times have, doesn't listen to this. I get a little more license out on, out on book tour. Uh, look, you know, I, 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 I worry. You know the, the. Do I put like an odd an auditory asterisk on what you're about to sure. say with some I, fine print? The New York look, Times I mean, is this, not this, just come this on. Isn't going to be news to to a lot of people, but you know, I I um I worry a ton about the people who have the least and who got the least out of school, right? So for the people who yeah. didn't finish are in default and are on default mm-hmm. for, you know, under $10,000 of, of Those debt. Those guys should be at the front of I the mean, line. I mean, please, right? Um, That's a no-brainer. And I'm actually not that worried about the lawyers and the doctors with two or $300,000 of debt. Um, but I also, um, I have more than a little sympathy uh, with the fact that anything like this is insanely complicated to administer. And if you start putting, you know, income caps or other requirements in place, Means tests and, yeah. Uh, yeah, then then the then the complexities and the unintended consequences and, and the cost of implementation and the time for implementation becomes really um, messy. So um, do we do we just wipe away ten thousand dollars? You know, I, I, I think that could have an you know an outsized effect on on low income people who got a raw deal without mm-hmm. really giving all that much away to the to the doctors and the lawyers, um, but but here's the you know here here here's what happens I think if if that actually happens particularly if it happens via an executive order, um, we have another Rick Santelli moment. So you may remember Rick Santelli on CNBC in 2009 from the floor of the Chicago whatever it was exchange, you know mouthing off about. Right losers who were going to get their mortgages um, or their mortgage debt forgiven because they were underwater. And, you know, the people who carry the bag in America and people who, 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 I I can't even remember, carry the water, spill the water. Right. And so um, there is a high potential political cost to doing what may well be the right thing. And mm-hmm. that cost could very well include, uh, you know, the the uh, the Senate and Congress turning red overnight in 2022. Um, mm-hmm. And there are people just itching, itching to use student loan forgiveness or cancellation as a wedge issue uh, to create a new movement of people who feel like the politicians who went to Harvard and Yale are only in it to help um, elites who have gone to college. And the question we have to ask ourselves as a nation is, do we care what those people think? Do we care what those people will do with with that and what sort of movement they might create out of it? And I'm not a good enough political prognosticator to know how an attempt to start a movement like that off this one issue would actually go. Um, But it wouldn't surprise me if it worked. Wouldn't surprise Um, me if this single issue flipped the Senate and flipped Congress. Ron, I I thought I I had emailed you and said that we need to leave this on a happy note. Didn't you see that? Didn't you catch that? (laughs) Yeah. The happy note is that you and I got to spend snowy Super Bowl Sunday together. And um, I'm, I'm just... Lit, like 
I'm I need to photo I'm gonna photocopy the page where my name is on it and send it to my parents so they can put it on the fridge. All right. <laughs> and I'm so thrilled that you have been um uh in touch and a fan and stuff and it's just I can't it's it's nuts to me. And I'm so thrilled the for the success of your book and I, I, I can't wait to send it to everybody that I think I need to send it to and who should read it, which is way more people than I, I probably can afford to do, but I'm gonna do my best. And um and I, I hope that you you leapfrog those other schmucks in the, that are ahead of you, the three of them on the bestseller list. Ron, where can people find your book? You can where should they buy it? You can find my book uh, anywhere that books are sold. But and, where should they buy it? Uh, thank you for thank you for laying that up. I'm going to give you the exact URL, which you could put in the show notes too, if you want. Please communitybookstore.net slash Lieber, L-I-E-B-E-R. So that is my local independent bookseller here in snowy Park Slope, Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> and if you go to that URL, uh, you can order uh, direct from my local and I will come in and sign it. And you can just put a note in, on the order form um, saying uh, how you want it signed. And uh, well, you, So how you want it signed? Yeah. Um, so like if can people say sign it in edamame hummus <laughs> i don't know how i don't know how well that would i don't know how well that would that's that up to would them stick. it doesn't matter that's up to them that's up to them but you folks order your signature from ron lieber in edamame hummus like that's got to be worth more than any you know sharpie signed version yeah there it is um, right there under order comments you know you can you can say anything you want right uh you know, dear, fantastic dear Dear uh, head of enrollment management at Connecticut College, uh, you really should have had a conversation with Ron Lieber. He does not bite. Ron, I got to give you props for naming names, man. That's great. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, thank you so much. And um, uh, here's to Fred, Papa Lieber again. Um, and I, I am so grateful that uh, you were here for so many reasons, not least being that, that you know, you, you're, you're missing your dad and um, just for so many things, man. I, I thank you so much sure. for, for doing this, Ron. Uh, it was a pleasure and an honor. You know, the, the pod is given to me and I hope that uh, I've given to the pod now. <laughs> you certainly have. You've given more time than most. And uh, and it's greatly appreciated here as I as I try to remember how to do this thing all over again. So this has been great. Thanks, Ron. All right. Thank you. Well, folks, that was a good long one. So I'll just say a short goodbye here and mention that some other books uh, are out there that you should read about socioeconomics and college, uh, namely The Privileged Poor by Tony Jack and Paying the Price, College Costs, Financial Aid, and The Betrayal of the American Dream by Sarah Goldrick Grab, both of which focus a bit more on the families in our society who, uh, no shade, likely aren't New York Times subscribers. I talked about shorthands in the interview that we use for quality and a big one used to determine how many poor families a college enrolls, which is to say how much of the right thing they're doing, arguably. Uh, the shorthand for that is the number of Pell Grant recipients at a school, uh, which is uh, interesting and a little depressing potentially to, uh, to, to dig deep, deeply into. Uh, but in order to qualify, your family needs to make something like $30,000 a year. And the maximum Pell Grant right now is worth about 6,500 bucks. That means that in 20 years, the value of a Pell Grant has gone up 
$1,660 when it was worth $4,840 in the 2001-2002 school year. Joe Biden is looking to increase the value by 400 bucks, which is apparently the biggest increase uh, to the grant since 2009 when it went up $762 from $4,928 to $5,692. You guys, do, you doing the math? You keeping notes? All right, cool. Uh, I thought I would just toss a bunch of numbers right at the end. That's cool. Just to keep you hanging on. Ooh, he's doing numbers. Better not hang up. I'm glad there's an increase in the uh, in the Pell Grant planned, but what's that really going to do for families with extreme need, I wonder? An extra 400 bucks. Uh, doesn't doesn't feel like a lot when you look at the cost of attendance in some of these places. But uh, who knows? It's a big, giant question. No time to get to the answer today. Even if I could, which I probably couldn't. But anyways, um, I'm going to stop. I'm so grateful you're here and listened all the way to this point. Because if you're listening to this, that means you did. That means you really did. You actually listened all the way to this point. Stay tuned for more from me just as soon as I can muster uh, the stuff to do it. I promise. Thanks so much, everybody. Spread love.